How many of you enjoy playing Monopoly? Do we have any Monopoly players in here? We have some Monopoly players. Like, yeah, Tyler, for sure. I know that he loves Monopoly. You know, I just want to tell you that if you ever have the opportunity, don't ever play Monopoly with my mom. And I'm going to tell you why. Because she's a cheater. <laughs> Years ago, it must have been when my little brother was in middle school, he and I were playing a game of Monopoly with my mom. And of course, I was winning handily. And my little brother, he was doing okay, but both of us, I mean, we were just slaughtering my mom. It was, it was pretty bad. I mean, we had hotels all over everything. You know how it works, right? I mean, we had absolutely everything. And all my mom had was that, you know, that little thimble action piece that you use? My mom was always the thimble. She loved the thimble. And that was all she had. And so every time she would get ready to play, we're like, this is her last roll. I mean, she's out of this game. It's all over as soon as she rolls those dice. But somehow my mom managed to stay in the game. I couldn't figure that out. I mean, all she had was that dumb little thimble, and she'd land on a hotel, she'd give her money to me, of course, and then, you know, I would get richer, and one way or another, she continued to go around the board time and time and time again. And, you know, and then what would happen is, you know, of course, we the game went on so long, we'd have to get up and go use the restroom or maybe grab a snack or something with my little brother, and we'd come back and get back at our Monopoly game. And finally, after we'd been playing for long, I'm not sure how it came up, but at some point, my brother and I began to ask ourselves, how is she still in this game? What's, <laughs> something is not right. What's going on? And i got to tell you, I'll never forget the look on my mom's face when she looked at me with this grin and she looked at the two of us and said, I pulled a bank heist. (laughs) She was the banker. And it turns out that whenever my little brother and I got up to take a break, my mom was helping herself to the cash in the bank. Well, I mean, that's it. Honestly, you think about it. I mean, that's it. Because at that point, the game really is over, isn't it? I mean, at that point, the game is completely over. The entire game was ruined. I mean, hours. Think about it, Hours of brilliant strategy and ruthless negotiation. And, and I never got to enjoy the sweet, you know, flavor of completely dominating them. It was all ruined because she is a rule breaker. She cheated. And I want you to know that I've never played that game with her since. It's interesting because just (laughs) a couple weeks ago, my little brother turned 42. So it's been nearly 30 years since my mom cheated. But to this day, anytime we play a game, she is not allowed to keep score. (laughs) And never under any circumstance, no matter what happens, is she ever to be the banker. It just, it doesn't seem very nice, does it, for me to hold on to it for that long? But I want you to know that, yeah, I mean, what you've got to understand is that even though she confessed, she never repented. (laughs) Because every time we get together, she continues to laugh about it, and she's just yucking it up about how she cheated in the game of Monopoly. And, you know, for 30 years, she's done that. And I'm just going to tell you that now every game that I play really is meaningless if she's in the game because she cheats. And just in case you're wondering, I want you to know that a couple months ago, my family and I went down to visit it at Christmas, and we were staying at their house, and I'm pretty sure she cheated at Texas Hold'em as well, but I couldn't prove that. You know, one thing that I find really interesting about religion is the need to follow rules. I mean, if you want to 
be sure to please whatever God it is that you decide you're going to serve, you have to do a few things. There are some rules that you have to follow. For example, if any of you ever decide that you want to become Buddhist and prepare for monastic life, I just want you to be prepared. You need to know that you're not going to be wearing colognes. You're not going to be wearing jewelry or any perfume. You need to be ready for that. You're not going to be dancing or singing. You're not not to do that. In other religious systems, you're not to eat meat. You're not to drink wine. Some religious systems will tell you that you have to pray a certain number of times every day, or maybe you have to pray a certain kind of prescribed prayer, or maybe you need to face in a certain direction when you pray. Maybe you even are required at least once in your life to travel to a certain holy place or whatever it is. Some religions will require that you give a certain percentage of your income. Another religion might tell you that you can't drink coffee or tea. I'm not going to be a part of that one. But there are just tons of religious rules out there. Did you know that? I mean, there are religious rules everywhere. And the ancient Jews of the time of Christ were not any different because they had a lot of rules like this as well. For example, all of you know the Ten Commandments as they're found in Exodus chapter 20, right? That's what these are. They're a list of Jewish rules. But there were also a lot of other rules. They had rules of dress. They had rules of hygiene. They had rules of diet. They had rules that governed their Sabbath day. And I always enjoy reading some of the rabbinic rules because there were so many of them. In addition to the real laws and the real rules that were laid out by God, these rabbis invented so many rules. They invented so many additional laws hoping that by doing just a little bit of extra credit, they could make up for some of the laws that they were failing to fulfill. They thought, if I can just create a couple more laws or a couple more rules that I can follow, maybe I can get a little bit of extra favor from God because I was unable to keep some of His laws. I just want you to know that's how religion works. That's just the way it is. I mean, in order for you to be acceptable to whatever God it is or whatever deity is you're serving, you have to get there by following their rules. Isn't that the way it works? And you see, that's ultimately what Judaism had turned into. The worship of the one true God had even turned into that. It had degenerated into this rule-following list of commandments and deals that you could not break. And what happened was, they took it to the point that they began to feel a lot like we do today. In fact, I was reading a commentary of the book of James by William Barclay, and I want to read to you what he said. He said, the Jew was very apt to regard the law as a series of detached injunctions. To keep one of these injunctions was to gain a credit. To break one was to incur a debt. Therefore, a man could add up the ones he kept and subtract from those the ones he broke and, as it were, emerge with either a credit or debit balance. Does that sound familiar to you? Can I put that in today's vernacular for you? What does that mean? It means, well, I think my good outweighs my bad. Isn't that what it amounts to? I think my good really outweighs my bad. I think for the most part, I do pretty well. I'm going to heaven because I do more good than I do bad. And that's how the ancient Jewish mind had begun to think. And I want you to know that that's exactly how people think today. You ask people why they're going to heaven, and I'll bet you most often you'll hear, well, my good pretty much outweighs my bad. My good outweighs my bad. 
But the truth of the matter is that God had given them the perfect law. He had given them the righteous law, and if they had kept it, they would have been fine, but they could not keep it, and they failed time and time again. And so the rabbis then decided they would add a few more laws, and they found that they couldn't keep the perfect law, so now they'll take these other laws, and they decided, you know, if you can just keep one of them perfectly, if you can just keep one law perfectly, God will overlook the fact that you're falling short on absolutely everything else. I want you to consider that for a moment. Is that possible? Is it possible that the rabbis were on to something here? I mean, would it be possible to fulfill the requirements of the law by just perfectly fulfilling one or two laws? Is that a possibility? One day, in Matthew chapter 22, there were a group of religious leaders who had gathered together and they were always hoping to catch Jesus in His words and to snare Him and to trip Him up. And in verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked Him a question to test Him. And he said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Consider that. I want you to think on that for a minute. Because basically, if you read the Old Testament and you read through the law, you're going to find that the law of God basically can be divided into two practical applications. Do you know what those are? The first is your relationship with God. The second is your relationship with other people. If you follow this law perfectly, if you follow this law perfectly, Jesus says you will fulfill both of those righteous requirements because all of the law and all of the prophets are hinging upon those two commands. Think about it. If you really love the Lord your God with all your heart, if you really love Him with all your heart, then you're probably not going to be putting other gods before Him, are you? If you really love the Lord with all your heart, then you're not going to make an image with your hands and bow down to it, are you? If you really love the Lord with all of your heart, then you won't take His name in vain and you won't violate the day that is set aside to honor Him. You wouldn't do that. And the same can be said of earthly relationships. If you really love your neighbor the way that you love yourselves, the same thing is going to happen. Let me explain what I mean. How do you love yourselves? Think about that for a minute. How do you love yourselves? And it's really interesting because science now is asking people this question. And they will ask themselves, do you really love yourself? And did you know that one of the greatest afflictions, one of the most commonly diagnosed afflictions in the world today is low self-esteem? I have low self-esteem. I'm sure that in many cases that's right. But if you think about it, and you think of all of the effort that people put into loving themselves, I wonder if they really esteem themselves lowly. Think about that for a moment. What kinds of things do you do to demonstrate your love for yourself? Well, you feed yourself three times a day. You make sure that you have plenty to eat, don't you? You bathe yourself, and thank you for doing that. Glad that you wash yourself up from time to time. You clothe yourselves, and I'm glad that you do that as well. You groom yourself, you know, you comb your hair, and you, you make yourself look nice. And when you're ill, you like to treat yourself, you like to tend to yourself, you like to maybe take some medicine or take a nap and, and try to make yourself feel better. 
In fact, many people will even go into debt to spoil themselves, to make sure that they give themselves absolutely everything that their selves could ever want. Their selves are pretty spoiled, aren't they? They really love themselves. But Jesus says you should love your neighbor in that same way. Interesting. You should love your neighbor in that same way. And if you do that, if you truly love your neighbor, do you know what? You're not going to murder him. If you truly love your neighbor, you're not going to go around sleeping with his wife. If you really love your neighbor, if you really care for him the way that you should, you're not going to steal from him. If you really love your neighbor, you're not going to say things about him that are not true. Are you following me? Do you see where I'm going here? If you love him, you are not going to do things that harm him. So the question then, obviously, is who is your neighbor? And I want you to know that you're not the only one to ask that question. The Pharisees asked that of Jesus as well. And if you want to read through Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following, you're going to find out that what Jesus says through the parable is that anyone that you meet who has need, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. I want you to get that. Your neighbor is anyone that you meet who has a need. And so Jesus says, if you will sacrificially love the Lord your God with all your heart, if you will sacrificially love the people that you encounter in life with all your heart in the same way that you love and care for yourselves, then you will perfectly fulfill the law of God. And that's exactly what James was saying in our passage for today. And so I'd like to take you now to the book of James, and we're going to look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, and then he repeats it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. It sounds identical to the conversation Jesus had, isn't it? Doesn't it sound exactly like what Jesus had said to that lawyer? If you really love your neighbor, then you're going to be doing great. If you love your neighbor, you're in really good shape. You see, if you do that, if you show that you love everyone in the body of Christ the same way by meeting their needs and serving them no matter who they are, no matter what they look like, then you are truly fulfilling the royal law of Scripture. You are fulfilling the law of God. You are doing well. It's the Greek word kalos, and it's often translated beautiful. You are doing beautifully. That's what he's saying. If you really love the people in the body of Christ, if you really love your neighbor, if you really sacrifice for them like you do for yourselves, then you are doing beautifully. Because what you're doing is a reflection of the character of God, isn't it? Because doesn't God sacrifice for those people? So it's a reflection of the character of God, and that's what we talked about last time we were together. That's exactly what he does. You are loving and you are sacrificing without regard, my friends, for status of the one you love. And when you do that, you're reflecting God very well because we know God's no respecter of persons, right? Isn't that what we talked about last week? So now stay with me here. On the one hand, if you are loving your neighbor as yourself, you're doing beautifully. If you're sacrificing for your neighbor, you're doing very well. But on the other hand, 
And then in the Greek language here, he gives us a conditional statement in verse 9. And I want to read that to you, and I want you to know that it should sound like this. So on the one hand, if you're loving your neighbor, you're doing beautifully. But now, verse 9, on the other hand, but if you show partiality, and you are, that's what the conditional statement tells us, if you show partiality, and you are, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. So now then, we've got a problem don't we? Now we've got a problem. You see, the bottom line of the law of Scripture is that you must love your neighbor, right? That's the bottom line. You must love your neighbor. On the other hand, if you really were loving, you would fulfill the law. But on the other hand, this is what you are doing. This is what you actually are doing. You are parabates. You are walking. You are going beside the law. You are walking past the law. And because you are not observing the law, but rather you are skirting around it, you are convicted and you're guilty of sin. That's the message. You are parabates. You are beside. You're outside the law. So you're not fulfilling the law by loving. You're missing that. You're not fulfilling the law by loving. Instead, you're outside the law. And what was it they were doing that made them outside the law? They were showing favoritism. Do you remember that? We talked about Mr. Goldfingers last week who came walking in and they looked at Mr. Goldfingers and they said, wow, we need this guy in our body. Hey man, come and sit at this really nice chair. And then they had a stinky guy in worn out clothing. And they said, eh, just take a seat. Hey, go seat yourself. Just don't get in the way of Mr. Goldfingers. That's what they were doing. That's what the problem was. They were showing favoritism. They were showing partiality. And the people that James was writing to, they were failing to fulfill the law of God. They weren't fulfilling the law of God. They were parabates. They were beside the law. They were walking past it. And predictably, I want you to stick with me, predictably, what happens as a result of that failure to fulfill the law is a stratification of the law. Do you know what I mean by that? I want to explain that to you. So some sins then become more condemning than others. you get it? That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about stratifying the law. Some sins become more condemning than others. I want you to know that it is in our human nature and we do it every single time we commit sin. We stratify our sin. And we say something like this, sure, maybe I do this from time to time, but at least I don't do that. You've never done that, have you? We don't do that. Well, I may have a little too much wine from time to time, but at least I'm not going around stealing from people. Maybe I gossip or tell a little white lie on occasion, but at least I'm not saying false things about my neighbor. I'm just saying it the way I heard it. And I imagine that James's readers would respond by saying something like this. Maybe we show a little favoritism to the guy who comes in with gold fingers. Maybe we show a little favoritism to the guy who comes in with nice clothes, but it's not like I'm going around committing adultery. Maybe we show a little favoritism to the guy who's got a little cash, but it's not like I'm going around murdering people. So I showed a little favoritism to this guy when he walked into our assembly. I didn't kill the poor guy. I let the poor guy sit on the floor. I didn't kill him. I didn't commit adultery with his wife. Give me a break. So I showed a little favoritism to the guy that had a few extra dollars. And so here we are, right back to the place where we're measuring our sin. Do you see it? Here we are, we're weighing it out again, and we're measuring our sin out, and we are convinced that the good that I have done is greater than the tiny little act of favoritism that I've shown. 
Do you see that? One of my favorites is when we stratify sin by comparing our sin to someone else's. That's one of my personal favorites. My sin of partiality isn't as bad as her sin of adultery. Right? And then what happens as a result of that, what happens as a result of the stratification of sin, friends, listen closely, is that we make wrong and often very cruel judgments of other people. I want you to get that. When you try to stratify your sin, you begin to make wrong and very cruel judgments of other people. Imagine if a particular person walks into the church fellowship, they serve faithfully, they attend faithfully for a period of time, and after they've been here for a while, they begin to feel the tug of the Holy Spirit to participate in whatever ministry. And some people might point at her and say, wait a minute, you know that she committed adultery with the associate pastor at the last church they were at? Did you know that about her? Why would we allow her to be on the worship team? You know, why would we allow that guy to teach at the men's study? You know he's divorced. So you are disqualified on the basis of your sin, but my sin of showing favoritism to the minor celebrity who just came walking into our building is just me taking an interest in her and her family. Do you see I'm not disqualified. All I did was show favoritism. You're disqualified because you used to be a prostitute. You're disqualified because you were a drug addict. You're disqualified because you were divorced. You're disqualified because of this, that, or the other. Isn't that what we do? But I'm good because all I do is show favoritism. And I want you to know something. James says that's not how it works. James says you are breaking the law just as surely as the adulteress is breaking the law. You are just as bad. And I want you to know that in God's economy, there's no difference. There's no difference at all. Let me show you why. I want to take you to verse 10. Take a look at this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Do you see this? This is so important. I want to read that to you again. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails on just one point has become accountable for for all of it. You become accountable for the whole thing. It turns out that uh, the most common form of cheating in Monopoly, I told you, I struggled to let this go. Do you know what it is? It's pulling a bank heist. I looked this up, and I've, I've followed this for a long time. There are many other ways that people can cheat in a game of Monopoly. In fact, confessions from Monopoly cheaters all around the world detail tricks like deliberately moving your piece either too many or too few spaces after you've rolled the dice so that you can avoid landing on someone's property. Also, lying about the number of turns you've been in jail. That's another one. Or stealing get-out-of-jail-free cards. Those things cost like a thousand bucks. Let me ask you a question. Does it really matter what your monopoly hustle is? Because if you break the rules just once, you have ruined the integrity of the entire game. Do you see? You break the rules just once, and the whole game is ruined. And you may be interested to know that 50% of all monopoly players cheat. 50% of all Monopoly players cheat. In fact, Hasbro, the makers of Monopoly, actually established a holiday helpline in 2016 to arbitrate Monopoly disputes for family gatherings. You think I'm lying about that. 
In fact, it is so serious that at one point in 2018, the makers of Monopoly finally said, look, everyone's cheating, why fight it? And so you know what they did? They actually came out with the Monopoly Cheaters Edition. And so the idea there is that in the Cheaters Edition, you're supposed to see how much rule violation and cheating you can actually get away with. I'm telling you, my mom would dominate that game. Listen, friends, just a silly attempt to illustrate the concept here in James. It doesn't matter which rule you break. It doesn't matter how you break it. Once the law is broken, it's broken. Do you see? It doesn't matter if it's stealing. It doesn't matter if it's lying. It doesn't matter if it's murder, adultery, and it doesn't matter if it's favoritism. If the law has been broken, you are parabates. You are outside. You are walking past the law. You are violating it. And you're convicted. You're guilty. MacArthur uses the analogy of a piece of glass to explain it, and I thought this was just wonderful. Think of the law like this. Think of the law as a big piece of glass. And so you have this big piece of glass, and if you have this thing, it really wouldn't matter at what point you hit the glass, would it? It would still be broken. It wouldn't matter where on the glass you hit it. It doesn't matter if you hit it with a hammer. It doesn't matter if you throw a brick through it. It doesn't matter if you use one of those little spring-loaded punches to break it. It doesn't matter if you shoot it with a BB gun. It doesn't matter where you break it. It doesn't matter how you break it. Once you have broken it, it is broken. It's not good anymore. The piece of glass is worthless at that point. And that's how it works with the law of God. Once you have broken it, you have broken it. It's broken, and it doesn't matter where you hit it or how you've done it. It's broken. Verse 11, James says, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. You've broken it. It's interesting to me here that in addressing this sin of favoritism, James brings up adultery and murder as comparatives. Doesn't it seem a little bit extreme? Think about this. In the Jewish law, the sins of adultery and murder were very, very serious. In fact, they were capital crimes. Take a look at Leviticus 20. It says this, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. It's a capital crime. Leviticus 24.17 says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. It's a capital crime. You commit adultery, you take a human life according to the Old Testament law, you die. It's very serious. So why does James use these two sins as examples? Because his point is that you may feel that showing favoritism in the church is no big deal. You may feel that showing favoritism is not a serious problem, but you need to know that it is a violation of the exact same law as murder and adultery. It's a violation of the same plane of glass, and you've broken it just the same whether you've committed adultery, whether you've murdered, or whether you've shown favoritism to the guy with gold fingers. You've done the same thing either way, because it was God who said, don't murder. It was God who said, don't be partial. And you've broken the same law. You've broken the same piece of glass because it was God that created them. Verse 12, James says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. See the rich man and the poor man? They're heading for judgment under the exact same law. 
God is going to use the same law to measure them. He's going to use the same law to judge both the rich and the poor. They are both going to stand before the same God of gods, and they are both going to answer for any violation of that same law. And if in any area they have broken it, in any area it's broken. Do you see? If at any point they have broken it, it's broken. And James says... You need to think about that in the church body. You need to think about that in the church body. We need to be thinking about that right here at Root River Church. Consider that. People come walking into the church. I mean, really, does the rich sinner deserve more favor than the poor sinner? Does the flashy sinner deserve more grace than the dirty sinner? No, He does not. They are both in need of the same grace from the same God. Speak to both of them and act toward both of them as if they are going to be judged under the same law. Because they are. Do you know why you should not judge or condemn a person who may be sitting here this morning who's broken the law by committing adultery? Do you know why? Because you broke the law just as badly by cheating on your taxes. You broke the law just as badly by telling that little white lie. The glass is just as broken. The same law that condemns the murderer condemns you for partiality. In verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now listen, in the Old Testament book of Genesis, You remember the story of how Joseph's brothers became very, very jealous of him. Unfortunately, Jacob, their dad, showed partiality toward Joseph. And when he showed partiality toward Joseph, he broke the family apart. It wasn't Joseph's fault. But because of their jealousy, but because of their anger, hatred grew in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. And they determined that they were going to get rid of him. They caught him. And they threw him into a cistern. They threw him into a pit. And they decided that they were going to sell him. And soon along came some Ishmaelite traders. And in Genesis chapter 42, it saddens me when I read this. We read that as Joseph was in the pit, cried out to his brothers. He was crying out to them. It says that he was deeply, deeply distressed in his heart. He was deeply distressed in his soul. Way down deep, his heart was broken and he was crying And he was crying out and he was shouting and he was begging his very own brothers to let him go. Can you imagine the agony in this young boy's heart? Can you imagine the fear that gripped him? And so from the bottom of that pit, he cried out and he screamed out to his older brothers and he begged them, please let me go. Don't don't do this to me. Every scream, every tear, they ignored. Maybe they even laughed. From this young boy, they turned a deaf ear toward him. I mean, how could you possibly ignore your little brother crying like that? How could you possibly ignore your little brother asking from such deep anguish in his heart for help? How could you listen to him as he asked for mercy? And as he asked you to show some compassion toward him, just terrified? They heard it, they heard his cries. They turned their back and they showed him absolutely no mercy. They took him out of that pit. They sold him off to the Ishmaelites and they went back to their dad and they made up this big lie 
about how he had been destroyed by a wild animal. How ruthless is that? How completely heartless is that? How cruel is that? This is the picture that comes to my mind every time I read verse 12. You see, friends, ultimately, we are all judged on the basis of that big piece of glass. We're judged on the basis of that law. Is it broken in any place or is it not? Listen, when God looks at us, He sees people who are equally guilty of breaking that same piece of glass. And I wonder, what must go through God's mind as He watches one sinner mercilessly and ruthlessly ignore the crying and pleading of another sinner right there in the same church body? What goes through His mind as He watches us treat one person with a little bit more favor than someone else? As we ignore the cries and the shouts of the one who's agonizing their their hearts and their spirit are deeply troubled. I want you to know that it's characteristic of unsaved people to not show mercy. The Gospel transforms hearts. The Gospel transforms your heart and it makes us all more like God, you see? It makes us all more like God. And I want you to know that God is merciful and God is compassionate. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God has mercy mercy and compassion for those who are deeply troubled, way down in their spirits? And believers who are true believers will reflect those characteristics of God. That's what will happen. That's the real test of faith, you see? That's the real test. You show me a person who shows no mercy. You show me a person who has no compassion. You show me a person who shows favoritism and partiality and disregard for people in need. And I'll show you a person who will have no mercy at the judgment. I'll show you someone who most likely is not saved because they're not reflecting the character of God. You show me someone who lives a pattern of life that shows no mercy and no compassion to people in need, especially to their own brothers, and I'll show you a false believer. Why? Because those that are truly saved reflect the character of God, and God is merciful. On the other hand, as you examine yourselves, if you see a pattern in your life of reflecting the character of God, if you find that it's the pattern of your life to show sacrificial love for others and you go out of your way to serve and to minister to other people and you don't spend all your time looking at yourself and thinking about yourself, but you can focus on others and how you can help them, I want you to know that that is evidence of true faith in Christ. It's evidence that He's done a regenerating work in your lives. Father, I thank You so much for Your mercy. I so thank You for the grace that You've extended to me. As You heard me crying out, You heard me calling on You in deep need that You didn't turn Your back on me. You didn't turn away from me and laugh because I had broken Your law by any number of things that I've done in my life. But that You showed mercy to me because You're a compassionate God. 
And Lord, every person in this room who truly has genuine faith in you can say the same thing, that at some point you reached into them while they were in the pit crying out, and you snatched them out, and you set them free, and you showed compassion, and you showed them mercy. And so now, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to manifest the true faith, the true saving faith that we have in Jesus Christ by allowing us to show that same compassion, that same mercy, that same sacrificial love for all the people, not only of this church, body, but for our community as well. I pray, God, that you would make Root River Church a church whose heart is desperate to show the love of Christ to others. Let us reflect your glory in our love. And most importantly, God, let us be a church body that loves the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength that every step we take, every action we take is a result of us asking ourselves the question, is what I'm about to do, is what I'm about to say, bring glory to God and reflect His divine character. We ask these things in Jesus' name.